Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. A while ago, I said the train was leaving the station and I asked whether you were on board or not. Now, the train is backed up and it's pausing. It's having mechanical problems. So the big question is, do we resume our trip higher or do we backtrack lower? It reminds me of that old thing when you're a kid that I think I can, I think I can, I think. But what if the markets can't? What is your plan of action for either scenario, whether it moves higher or whether this was just a mild pullback, it's consolidating and consolidating the gains? before it moves higher or whether this is actually a break and it can't hold support and it breaks lower. On a related topic, and this is really going to be the soup de jour today, this is really going to be the thing where you want to pay attention. What is the hardest lesson for new CanSlim investors to learn as an investor? And we're going to talk about breakout stocks and the pros and cons. We're also going to talk about the equity curve, the growth stock investing, Versus, you know, slightly, you know, like the can slim versus kind of how Revere does it. It's slightly different. Okay. Then we're going to go to the mailbag. Oh, then, then we've got seven. And by the way, I've got show notes in, in, in the show notes. There's some articles in there. You can certainly read them and go through them. One is about the social security estimates being at 3% next year. One, some intriguing uh, uh, Roth IRA mathematics for um, higher net worth individuals. Uh, here's the problem. You can only put seven, six or 7,000 a year in. So it's hard to get big amounts in there. But if you can, it's a very interesting article. And then one more rest in peace uh, about recession. This article is claiming the recession. It didn't come to fruition. It's over. But now do we have to worry about resurging inflation? And those are all pretty good articles. You can read them. And if you got any questions on them, you can reach out and talk to me about those. And then they had an article in the mailbag. It's talking about the seven types of investments that regular retail investors, don't you love how they classify you as a regular retail investor, should avoid because you're not sophisticated or you're not, you should, you should stay away from these. A few of these I disagree with vehemently. A few of these I agree with completely. And a few, it depends on the situation. So and anyway, and then and then we're gonna go and then we're gonna go to the mailbag because and especially the last uh, uh, mailbag uh, dovetails perfectly with the uh, the soup du jour with the topic at hand. So we're gonna get into that first. I'm gonna talk about the seven types of investments that you, as a regular retail investor, should avoid. 
speculative assets. That's number one. That's pretty broad. That could even be a growth stock. So a growth stock is Tesla. Should you avoid Tesla? Should you not own that? But anyway, it's basically saying the daunting average person uh, with a financial advisor, they should stay away from anything uh, clear that's considered speculative. I'm saying this is wrong with caveats. If you have a sell discipline, it's okay. If they're highly liquid, it's okay. What I would say, if it's illiquid, if it's some kind of private equity deal and you don't do a lot of due diligence, then I would agree with that. But speculative assets is just too broad for me. That's too broad of a net. Number two, real estate investment trust. Clients should stay away from real estate investment trust. They're mutual funds that operate shopping malls, office buildings, apartments, um, shopping. And here's their argument. And I, my, my answer on this is sometimes, sometimes you should avoid REITs. Other times they're, they're a good investment. But shopping malls are ending foreclosure left and right. As online shopping increases in popularity, office vacancies have soared 17% nationwide. More people are working from home. You know the story. Okay, it, but now you've got vacancy rates climbing 23%. You've got, uh, it's, it's harder to refinance because rising interest rates and the likelihood of foreclosure. We've talked about this on the show. Commercial mortgages, folks, usually re-up every five to seven years. They're shorter term because commercial leases are five or seven years. It's not like a 30-year mortgage on your house. So they, they can't lock in a super low rate and hold it for a long time. They've got to refinance, and now they're getting a bunch of refinancing. So what I would say to this on REITs is right now, I would, I would, from a fundamental analysis standpoint, I would be staying away from commercial properties and commercial REITs. But some REITs, like residential housing or even um, – um, oh, the retirement communities that are in high demand. There are certain sectors in there that aren't as risky in this current environment. So the time to stay away from REITs is when they're bad, when they're not doing well, when they're trending down. The time to own REITs is when they're trending higher and they're showing strong relative strength. Penny stocks. Oh, this guy's right on this one. I mean, unless you're just like to go, 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 go to Vegas, penny stocks are high risk low price stocks the cost the it's low cost but it's high upside potential but however being highly speculated it's targets of pump and dump schemes and scammers this is absolutely true to lure inexperienced investors to invest in a stock by promoting the stock and then dumping it folks penny stocks are extremely speculative and for everyone that goes up a thousand percent goes up tenfold. You have nine of them that go belly up and go bankrupt. So to have enough diversification so that one position doesn't cream you, what do you do? You have to buy 10 of them. So now you hit one that hits a home run. Then you have nine to go bankrupt. You kind of got an average return. Uh, you know, it's just better to stick with highly liquid stocks. Okay. Number five. Investments they don't understand. I would agree with this if you don't understand it. Now, we do a lot of technical analysis and we do a lot of stuff that's uh, 
high, it's just highly technical and it would be hard to follow every nuance. But as long as the client understands conceptually uh, the process and the philosophy that you've got some type of cell discipline, you're going to have certain drawdowns or you're buying on these metrics, you have this allocation. Uh, but if you really don't understand the investment, if you don't have a professional that does and is advising you on it, I would stay away from that. Number six, commodities, everyday investors should avoid ev commodities. Everyday investors should avoid commodities. Ah, that's too blanket. I don't really like that. He's saying derivatives rather than buying actual commodities. They're actually based on derivatives. And that's uh, there's nuance to trading futures contracts. That is true. And you want to leave the uh, futures to professional traders. I would agree with that. But there are also commodity ETFs that trade on the stock market where you have a commodities trader within the ETF that manages it for you. So you can put that ETF up there with a ticker just like a stock and you can have rules around that. Um, but commodities specifically, buying commodity futures, that is a little bit tricky. And seven, and I agree with this for the most part, unless you're very high net worth, number seven, individual muni bonds. Said the retail investor, individual muni bonds, a preferential tax treatment is attractive for those in higher tax brackets. Um, uh, uh, although he's talking about you get credit downgrades that can hurt, adversely affect uh, uh, the bonds. And there's some other issues. Folks, here's the problem with muni bonds. Okay. You got to look at the after-tax equivalent yield. So if I can make five and a half in a short-term treasury or even five or six in some corporate bond, and I'm getting two and a half or three in a muni bond. I'm just throwing out examples. These are not real numbers. And two and a half of muni bonds, once I pay the tax on my taxable bond, is that yield higher than the, than the free tax, the tax-free interest on the muni bond? It's called the after-tax equivalent yield. Then you compare apples to apples purely on interest. Now let's look at risk. Muni bonds, their market is small. Because it's only they're only tax free for the citizens of that state and other states that are, don't have an income tax system like Texas, Nash, uh, uh, Tennessee, and Florida. So California, it's a pretty big state. If you're California citizens, that's their market, and then plus Texas uh, and these other tax these other five tax free states. However, if you're Idaho, Idaho doesn't have a lot of volume. There's not a lot of volume in Idaho muni bonds. And so they're they're, you, you can get caught in a liquidity squeeze later if you ever want to get out. Here's the other thing that happens. An investment advisor will buy $100 million of muni bonds for all their clients. And then they stick two bonds in one account, five bonds in another, 50 bonds in a larger account. In a million-dollar bond account, they do 50000 That's a 5% position. But if that guy needs money, his daughter's getting married, he needs to sell those. Even $50,000 is a very, very small piece. And a bond broker knows that's a distress sale. And he, whatever you see on the statement, you're going to get less than that. You're going to take a 3 4 5% hickey. Because those bonds are traded in million-dollar blocks. So individual bonds, once they allocate them across the individual accounts, you don't have liquidity there. You're kind of, you're, you're at the mercy of the, the bid-ass spread or you're going to hold to maturity, okay? So unless you have a multi-million dollar account and you're buying big, big, large blocks of individual bonds, it's better just to use the bond ETF where you can get in and out 
and just get in and out with a single trade. That gets a little bit tricky. But anyway, muni bonds are um, um, much more complicated than people think. And I would tell you as a general rule of thumb, as a heuristic, I would say I generally don't, I steer away from muni bonds because I can find other things that after I pay the tax have a higher yield and they're safer and more liquid. That's me. All right. Now for the main, oh, we got to go to the mailbag, mailbag, and then we're going to get, jump right into the main topic. All right. So this was from Thursday, August 10th. Hi, Don. Really enjoyed your videos. The content you put out there is nothing short than amazing. Kudos to Don. That's my comment. I've been trading from, from 2017, started making money in 2020, had my first down year 2022, around 6%, not too bad. At the moment, I don't have a lot of time to be in the markets with two children, uh, the other uh, small children. Uh, with the time difference, it's very difficult to prepare them at the markets at 1530. I have a full time as well. Being from South Africa, is it possible to become a client? We'll love to hear from you. Regards, JR. JR baby from South Africa. My my one of my best friends and neighbor Lou uh, Luther Lingenfelder is from South Africa. Uh, yeah, he's a great guy. Anyway. On, and so Don says thanks so much for the kind words. I'm copying my partner Dan Stewart. He will investigate whether we can in, uh, accept clients from South Africa. Thanks for reaching out. Unfortunately, and alas, we cannot accept uh, clients from South Africa. And if we have existing clients from South Africa, we have to say bye-bye to them because we did not re we didn't, they did not sign the Ameri We don't have a treaty, uh, the correct treaty with South Africa. Now, if you're international and you're watching this, don't be discouraged. There's lots of countries we can take Europe. It just depends on the country, Norway. It's all good. Sweden, not so much. Portugal's good. Spain's bad. Or is it the other way around? You just have to check, but we do take on international clients, and we do have international clients. So it just depends. Okay. Another one, August 10th. Hi, Don. Is this an opportunity? Question mark. MW. And then he's got a little screenshot he took, and it's, a, it's an advertisement. It says, want to make $1,000 in two weeks by 99 shares of J&J &J stock. Um, uh, many individual investors are trying to do just that by purchasing 99 shares of J&J &J stock to take advantage of their odd lot rule in the company's $40 billion exchange with Kevinu. The potential payoff, if things go right, is more than $1,000. $1,000 on what? But... However, that isn't guaranteed because it hinges on the near-term stock price of the two companies. The opportunity arises from J&J &J ticker uh, exchange offer, Reed and Barron's. So I have actually put that link in the show notes. You can actually read the details of it. But I loved Don's answer is very succinct. You know Don. He's like a surgeon. Uh, uh, there's no cordiality, just very cut and dry. I am. Nothing is ever a sure thing in the market. That payoff, however, isn't guaranteed because it, quote, hinges on the near stock, near term stock prices of the two companies. I can't predict the outcome. Don. All right. Finally, and this is the one that's going to dovetail with our uh, uh, topic today. This was Tuesday, 8-8. And this is from LS. Pay attention to the initials LS. Should I sell TDMX with their new, with their new, they had some negative news, with their bad news, or do you think it will bounce back? Keyword there, think. 
I still have a profit, but it sounds like they're struggling with the pay, payouts to employees. Thanks, LS. This is me. Jay. I called her Judy. Nice to hear from you. It all depends on your strategy, but we would not be holding now based on its terrible reaction to earnings and or if following a canceling methodology. We never think about what a stock might do, and that simply gets us in trouble. We measure what is happening while it's happening and make adjustments accordingly. Don has been a master at this. Some stocks won't work out, but we will not let a single stock ruin our strategy. So if the stock breaks, it is a sell regardless of what we think or wish. <clears throat> we cannot give you specific stock advice without knowing your cost basis where you per and where you purchased your other positions, correlations, your other positions in the portfolio. Folks, it's about the it's not about any indiv one individual position. It's about the positions in their entirety in the portfolio and their correlations to each other. Anyway, um, it, it is it, without knowing your cost basis where you purchase your other positions, your time frame, as well as your trading and investing strategy. Is she short or midterm? What is it? I wish I could be of more help. Best of luck, Dan. <laughs> Don's answer to me, Dan. Your answer is perfect, but you got her name wrong. <laughs> so I emailed her back and I said, "Sorry." Linda, I meant to say Judy. I actually had a girlfriend in high school with your same last name. So every time I see your name, last name, I think of Judy. All right. So with that, folks, we are going to. Memories. <laughs> what do you say? Like the corners of mine. <laughs> I'm singing memories, Dan. Uh, but, yep, yep. Um, anyway, she was a nice girl, Judy. Anyway, um, so I started the, the show with. You know, the train has leave, left the station a month ago, a month and a half ago, started, and I had this nice rally for a couple months, and now it's pulled back some. And now it's kind of resting, right? And, it, and so what's going to happen here is the question. How do you prepare? Because there's only three scenarios. One, it just goes sideways. That scenario will not happen for a long time. The other two scenarios, one of those is going to happen. I don't know which one. It's either going to consolidate the gains and then resume higher, or it's going to break down and sell off. So the, the, the topic I brought up is what is the hardest lesson for a new can-slim investor who's trying to, you know, buy breakouts, that's the can-slim methodology, and the pros and cons of that. And then uh, related to that, the equity curve at, of gross stock investing. And we're going to compare a different, a couple of examples. So with Don, I turn that over to you, Don. Well, thanks, Dan. So up on my screen, I, I, I am showing a chart that ha has been developed over years of feedback of our process and when it's in favor and when it's not in favor and how we uh, react accordingly. And part of this chart is your approach to the market. So let's take, for example, uh, well, let's review the different types, first of all, and where we are right now. Uh, we're in bull pullback mode which is a mild pullback of three to 4%. Our expectation for protection should be, we should be in line or with minor underperformance. And this is exactly what we've seen with the S&P down 3%, we were down 4%. Uh, we're coming back from bull one, which is early bull market. Uh, 
uh, which a bear market rally, which is where we came off the bottom, evolved into, and our expectation is at the beginning, inline or minor outperformance. We actually saw the minor outperformance. So basically up two to three percent versus what the S&P was doing. Now we're giving that back a little bit more. If we hit more than minus four percent, we go into the mild correction mode uh, and our performance should be in line or uh, if we get a little bit worse than that, we'll have minor outperformance. In this case, I'm referring to inline with a 60-40 portfolio because if you correct uh, more than say 6%-ish, five to 6% in this case, we're gonna be under the 50-day moving average, but still above the 100-day moving average on the S&P 500 and our target uh, exposure to the market uh, is going to be uh, uh, about a 0.6. In other words, about 60% in the S&P and uh, the rest in cash. And we'll we'll do that by being in SSO by about 30%. Uh, and some possible hedges and some possible opportunities in individual names. But the key column here is the approach to the market during these different expectations. And as long as you're in a bull market, uh, you're, you've got the green light to buy breakouts. They won't be perfect. Some of them will fail. Uh, some head fund managers, portfolio managers, endowments will take that opportunity of new highs to take some uh, off the table. And sometimes that will overwhelm the demand for the stock. And even in the best of conditions, uh, it's about a 50-50 shot with whether or not a breakout is going to work. But the, the payoff and the O'Neill approach is that you can lose 7% three times and you gain 120% that offsets it. So uh, with a 50-50 batting average, you should clearly be able to make money with these types of, uh, with this approach in markets. The problem is when this pullback starts and it's, you can't recognize it quickly enough to stop buying breakouts. Uh, they should definitely be definitely be taken uh, with uh, with a dose of caution. And as it, it appears that we're uh, migrating in more from this mild pullback to this mild correction, and breakouts just aren't going to work. They just don't work. But the IBD methodology is, for the most part, uh, geared toward looking for setups and buy the breakout. And plain and simple, and this is from years of experience, and anybody that, that knows CanSlim uh, knows that the most important letter in CanSlim is the M in market, but it's not always cut and dried whether or not it's a buy or a sell. There are a thousand shades of gray in there between how strong the market is, which sectors are in favor, uh, what the market's preferring. So uh, we avoid breakouts. The only the, type, the only type of strength that we will buy in a market like this is off of uh, a support level, a pullback to a moving average. Uh, in other words, you want to, the next column, buy pullbacks. And in any of these situations, whether or not you're in a mild pullback or a mild correction or a bear market, buying pullbacks is certainly uh, a low risk way to get entry into the market with a tight, uh, stop that should be um, 
right below where you're buying. It's either going to work or the market's going to worsen and, it's, and you're going to break that support level that you're buying off of. Uh, if you go into this moderate correction, uh, buying pullbacks is certainly cautionary and anything worse than this, you want to get the heck out of the way. Uh, you can see over here uh, BMR, which is a bear market rally, early recovery, which we experienced earlier this year. Buying breakouts at best is cautionary. For one reason, there's not going to be a whole lot of them, and you're coming right off the bottom, and the market's not convinced uh, that you're actually the bottom may be in. So at, a lot of the fund managers, again, take the opportunity to unload stocks as they uh, look at uh, breaking out through a certain uh, level. But again, buying pullbacks in, a, in an early bar, bull market recovery is something that uh, we do all the time. And again, the same situation, it's a low risk entry point. Your stop should be very close to where you're getting in because you're bouncing off of a support level. Uh, this third column here is, do you want to short breakdowns or short into resistance? Uh, really no reason to do that when you're in a bull market. Uh, you're swimming against, uh, you're swimming upstream if you're trying to short in a bull market. Uh, you certainly can do it during a pullback because there will be some stocks that are just going to roll over, uh, but it's certainly a cautionary tale. And then uh, shorting breakdowns, our prefer is to short them into resistance, not uh, as they break down, uh, but you got the green light to do that if you want to do it. So basically, uh, over the years that I've been managing and knowing how Grotection and how really CanSlim will operate versus the S&P 500, uh, this is the chart that we've come up with uh, to identify different types of markets and the way you should trade those different types of markets. So there's a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears that went into generating this. And um, it, it's good to know what your expectation should be uh, during these different periods. Now, during this uh, pullback correction, moderate correction, we, for the most part, won't be in individual names. We'll be letting the S&P 500 sort out uh, how low it's going to go. We don't want to be completely out of the market uh, because those first couple of days in that uh, follow-through day that you'll get, the, the indices will be up like one and a half, two and a half percent. And if we can catch that uh, bounce off the bottom and it happens at a very logical area, say the 100 day moving average uh, or a horizontal support line, uh, it's a good way to, a good low risk way to get money in, either buying a pullback with caution or uh, going into the, the index that's showing the strength off of the support level. So, uh, that's kind of the summary and how we approach things. Uh, and well, that's, Dan, so, I'm sure you have some questions or comments. Well, based yeah. On that. So, so what, what Don did there is very apropos. So, the bottom line is, you got to measure the market first. You got to know which direction the market is. Are you in a primary uptrend or are you in a downtrend? Is the market weak or strong? If the market's strong, you buy break. You can buy breakouts. If the market's weakening, it's tenuous and in a in a strong pullback or bear market, you don't even buy pullbacks. In fact, you ought to be primarily in cash. I think the only thing that I would like to comment is uh, on your chart there. It it I think it's really it's very clear on when we're in a strong bull market and a and a bull market and uh, off the right off the very bottom 
will always underperform because that's how we missed out and missed a lot of the pain, missed ha you know half or more of the pain on the way down is by being in cash. So when it first bounces off the bottom because nobody knows where the bottom is, you're always going to underperform. The ones where you have a minor correction or a moderate correction, those are the ones that are, in my opinion, just a little less indeterminate and harder to make because the range, it really depends on the range. And that's what he's measuring there. The, the the range is what he's talking about with moderate in, you know, moderate in, in, in what is that next one early, you know, the, the different, the various pullbacks. Um, all right. So let's switch gears now and let's talk about the can slim specifically and the equity curve by you know, like how Revere does it, you know, because we kind of have a sell discipline. So we try to smooth it out a little bit because, folks, here's the bottom line. If you're just going to buy and hold, and especially if you're going to buy and hold gross stocks, you're going to have to deal with some very, very wide, big swings. And even if you say you, you're, you've got, you're very aggressive, you're an aggressive investor and you've got an aggressive risk profile, when you lose 35%, because that's going to happen every three, four, five, six years, you're going to end up hitting your pain threshold and you're going to, want, you're going to sell. You're not going to be able to stand it out. But the whole point is, with Revere, we try to smooth that out a little bit. So we're not trying to absolutely hit a home run and make a 20% returns every year. We're trying to make equity-like returns and decent, good, solid returns without big, major drawdowns that the markets go through every four to five years. So a perfect example, I guess it's more would be called the extreme example, would be like the ARK funds, the AARK. In 2020, that thing was up huge. But then in 2022, it got absolutely slaughtered. So that thing is going up 40, 50, 80, 90, 100%. Then it's losing 60, 70, 80%. Most people can't deal with that kind of volume. Now, that's the most extreme because they're doing very high beta growth stocks and, and crypto and all kinds of stuff, right? But even more traditional can slim methodology, if you're constantly doing it, and you're all in all the time, your equity curve gets much more volatile. So Don, with that, talk just a little bit about the equity curve. Yeah, I'm gonna, what I'm gonna show is, first of all, the ARK, ARKK, the, um, the ETF, the Kathy Woods ETF that invests, not necessarily in canceling stocks, but in extreme high growth stocks. Right, She's, right. Uh, will take some of the more speculative ones. And you can see, you know, very clearly the massive outperformance that uh, she had in 2020. And then it went sideways and, and built a base throughout 2021. Uh, note the relative strength during this period was lagging because growth stocks were not having a good time relative to the S&P 500. And then when the bear market comes up, just a, an absolute waterfall to the downside because uh, these speculative names just don't do well. It does. It makes no sense whatsoever to give up this big gain by holding ARKK uh, as it rolls over and goes to the downside. And I've seen people uh, mock FFTY, which is the IBD uh, 50. You can see the big gains that it had during 2020. You can see it building a base here uh, during 2021. Uh, attempted breakout, failed breakout. And then people say, yeah, but look what the FFTY did during 2020. Well, they don't 
go to cash in FFTY. They will keep their 50 liters on there with the expectation that if you're following the rules, you're going to sell in this area because we don't hold gross stocks during bear markets. So anybody mocking the performance of FFTY is missing the M in CanSlim that you won't even be in the market because the market's not in your favor. We buy when the, the wind is at our back, not when the wind is at our face. You can pretty much ignore the performance of 50-50 or just use it as a barometer that's telling you, yeah, you're gonna get your butt kicked if you hold FFTY during a downtrend, but that's not a surprise to anybody. The average growth stock corrects 72% off of its peak uh, after it tops. We know and anybody that's read the book and follows the system knows you're not gonna be holding FFTY during this period. You're gonna be looking for this period with the bottom uh, being put in. It'll form a cup and handle or a flat base. It'll break out and start going higher. Uh, but these couple of bars over here will pretty much tell you what's going on with growth stocks. The RG8 that we show the performance of uh, every day is our way of monitoring what's going on in the growth stock environment. We show that in every video and it's absolutely, uh, growth stocks have not been in favor over the past four weeks. Uh, you can see ARKK, you can see any, any of the RG8 is gonna tell you that if you look at the chart on it, but um, it's very difficult to identify on an individual basis what's going on if you're not don't have your finger on the pulse of the market, but when these moving average levels break in liters, a good example uh, is SMC. Uh, we held this during a good part of this ride up. We took profits as it got ridiculously extended. We were down to a 1% position uh, when they reported earnings, and this week it's down 24% as they blew up on earnings. Let's go to a daily chart, and this is one of the quintessential uh, growth names that you should have had a, if you're an O'Neill investor, an IBD investor, uh, you should have had a position in this, riding this from the breakout here or the gap up here uh, or the breakout above this level. And really didn't give any sell signals, but we do a combination of selling into strength when we get a certain ATR extended from the 21 day moving average, which is this green line. And you can see how ridiculously extended this got all throughout this period. So we were selling into it, waiting to see what happens, uh, and certainly willing to buy it back if it had a good earnings reaction, but it didn't. And um, we, sell, we sold our last piece after hours at 303 after uh, the gap down happened. Uh, and you can see what's happened this week uh, with as SMCI, not only did it gap down, it made a lower low after the gap down day. And that, if you felt like you were gonna be holding it, uh, that's absolutely the final sell signal. Uh, we know a high volume break of the 50 day moving average is a typical can slim uh, exit point. So, um, you know, what, what goes up must come down at some point and you, you can't just hold these things forever. You gotta be cognizant of earnings, what's going on in the overall market environment and what's going on with the individual stock uh, relative to what's going on in the market. The last of these big leaders that we're holding on to uh, is NVIDIA. We, we, uh, our first three buys were done before this big uh, move up. This week we've done two sells of what we bought post gap up move. 
the worst, the last was yesterday where we locked in our 20% gains, but uh, we've got a big decision to make here. This is looking like it's gonna close by uh, under the 50 day mo moving average at the end of the week. And if we go to a weekly chart, you can see the volume's not overwhelming. So, and 400 is a big uh, resistant uh, support level. So the question is, uh, do we give it a little bit more room or do we cut some more off? I would say that with the three buys that we've done, we would probably take about a third off as our gains that were up in the 70 plus percent level are down to uh, 50% gain. So uh, this is a big leader. It was the number one stock in the market. Uh, it's the one that really put the spotlight on AI with its big gap up and its big projections for the current quarter. Uh, but it looks like it's gotten a little late in the process. Anybody that bought in here after the big gap up is, has seen their profits from where it topped around the 500 level uh, down to 400. If so, if you didn't buy any, anybody that bought around this level is just getting back to even and 400 was a big uh, level where people bought and you know your profits have been dwindling away. So this is a reason why people are hitting the exits over the last uh, week or so is that you're seen, you've seen your profits uh, dissipate. And if you bought it back here, that's great. If you bought it here earlier in the year, you've got plenty of gains to sit through a situation like this, uh, but not necessarily uh, if you bought it late. And you can see the next level here, the 20 week EMA, uh, that's another 10, 12% down. So uh, are you willing to give it that much if you close below? Uh, the 10 week moving average this week. That's that's a decision that every individual investor has to make, but, um, and we'll be making it by the end of the day today. Uh, so I wanted to ask, this closes. I wanted to ask one question going back to the 50 50, right? And the can slim. So can slim, the very first thing you do is you measure the market and, and are you in an uptrend or downtrend? So if you're in a downtrend, that would tell, especially if it's very strong, that would tell you don't buy growth stocks. You're not, you stop buying growth stocks, right? Now. Yes, unless you want to take small positions on a pullback. Oh, so yeah, unless it you're taking very, very small positions, so you adjust it, right. But right. you're saying that the 50-50 can slim ETF that's theoretically. Oh, FFTY. FFTY, right. excuse me. you were talking about. It, I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah, FFTY, they actually have to hold, they've got to be fully invested at all times. So even though they're marketing themselves as kind of a canceling methodology, they're missing exactly. the biggest part of it. And that's why they have the big drawdowns similar to ARC and they don't actually exhibit true canceling like results. Yeah. All, all this does is. Give, it, it gives you the feedback that you shouldn't be buying growth stocks, which is part of the entire process, the M in market. And if you did stay in them, even though these are the quote unquote leading stocks, this is what you can expect to get in a bear market is, uh, you know, a 50% haircut in growth stocks. Like we said, the average leader tops and loses 72% off the high. So uh, avoid that. Canceling isn't a buy and hold, uh, buy the leaders and hold. It's a buy. Remember, William O'Neill took most of his profits, 20% from the pivot. Uh, he doesn't hold everything that he buys forever. There's a few handfuls of names that can give you massive uh, returns of 100, 200, 300. Like a yeah. For the most yeah. part, yeah, but for the most part, he's taking most of his gains, and this is part of the rule at 20% uh, above the pivot. Right. So, um, 
right and hey, listen that's, by the way that's the, that, that's the system it's not it's not a it's not an a la carte menu that's the system you don't have to <laughs> choose rules to follow you, you can't pick uh, it you right follow them all well so here's the other thing though along those lines folks similarly put cancelum aside for the moment because this is the heart of this whole discussion today if you buy and hold and you do the asset allocation in the mutual funds, just like the 50-50 ETF, they've got to be fully invested at all times. So it's your job to know when to sell the fund, not the fund manager. He does not move to cash. He doesn't move 50% to cash when the market's getting scary. And then if we go into a bear market, he's moving 100% to cash. He's staying fully invested, writing it down. So I've told this story before, and I'm going to tell it again because it's important. Uh, this is back when I first, early in my career, it's like 96, 97, 90, I'm sorry, it's 99, end of 99, early 2000, right before the tech wreck, I was interviewing Art Bonell. He was the Bonell Growth Fund. He was a darling of Wall Street in, 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 in the 90s. He had Dell, he had, you know, the Dellionaires, he had Dell stock, he had WorldCom, which is now bankrupt. He had, I mean, he had all these go-go, Cisco Systems was his big name. And so he had all the, and so he was the darling of Wall Street. And during the commercial, uh, uh, he kind of leaned over me and said, man, Danny, I don't know what I'm doing. I got $40 million of new money the last three weeks. And I said, well, Art, that sounds like a good problem to have. What's the problem? He said, no, you don't understand. I've got to go invest that money right now at these prices. And I thought, wow, Art Bonell just told me that he is actually thinks it's way too extended and he wouldn't be buying in his own portfolio. In fact, he's probably moving to cash in his own portfolio, but his Bonell growth fund has to be fully invested at all times. So he had to go buy $30 million of stock when he knew damn well, good and well, it was too high priced. So he was hamstrung by the structural, by the structure of his fund. Most, almost all mutual funds and ETFs are like that. They have to be fully invested all in, all the time, foot on the pedal with no brakes. And it's up to you to know when to sell. That's why if you have an advisor with the pie chart of mutual funds, you need to ask them, what is your sell discipline? If they tell you, well, it's an asset allocation, so you got some bonds, you got some stock, that's all good and well. Here's the problem with that diversification argument. You want enough diversification so one position like an Enron doesn't cream you because they're lying about the books and you had no way of knowing, right, on the way up. So in a good up market, a primary uptrend, you want to have enough diversification so that one position doesn't kill you. However, in a downtrend, in a bear market, all the correlations grow together and it sells off together. So everything goes down together. I don't want any of the crap. I want to move to cash. So in 2008, the S&P was down 42%. NASDAQ was down 50. S&P was, small caps were down 60. And I'm rounding. Emerging markets were down 70. Even investment grade bonds were down 25, 30. Take your pick. You get a blended rate of down 40%. That's when you want cash or treasury bonds, maybe even gold. There's only a few asset classes you want when it hits the fan. You want to cover up. You don't want diversification. That's why Don calls it diversification. Okay? So you want 
enough diversification in a good market and you don't want any in a down market. Is that what you've been told? Or you been, have you been Pavlovian dogged by the traditional visor brotherhood that is Wall Street? All right, enough said. I've got off my bully pulpit. Go ahead, Don. Let's go to Team Revere. And- yeah, let's do it. And uh, first we're going to go to Ted. Ted's got, uh, he's going to give us a quick summary a on quick two, summary. Perspective, two perspective growth stocks. Uh, that are in the 21 over 21 and uh, had recent good reactions to earnings. And they're in kind of the sweet spot that hasn't gotten destroyed, which is uh, data center components and data center networking. So, Ted, uh, take it away. And uh, which stock are you going to show us first? Yeah, here we go. So the first one is VRT. And I just want to quickly kind of introduce what a data center is. So. As we progress as a civilization, we're more reliant on data than ever before. Um, so these two companies are, are part of the backbone of the build-out of data centers central to this potential AI revolution. And so a data center essentially is a building or room um, that houses a bunch of computers that are connected to each other. Um, and they kind of process information data, they store it, and they distribute it um, to various applications. And so it takes a lot of power to operate these data centers. And if you imagine like when you when you have a laptop on your lap, it gets pretty hot, right? And imagine like hundreds and thousands of big computers and gadgets hooked up to each other. That gets really hot. Um, so VRT is the first ticker that Don has pulled up. Clearly like the chart exploded on earnings. So something is something good is going on. And so first I'm gonna talk qualitatively about it and a few points on why might that be. And so their products specifically um, are, are intricate in the power and cooling part of data centers, and they're central to the build out of these data centers. Um, we, we need to cool these computers well, or else they'll fry out and everything, like if you have some computers frying out, then the entire system will go down. And so I read some reports on their website and also checked out their website. And so the first thing noted is that data centers are an above average growth market and VRT from their management believes they're a leader in, in global supply in these facilities. Um, they noted that their improved execution and organic growth in this last quarter improved their earnings outlook, which clearly reflects in the chart and the numbers, which I'll give later. Um, so gapping up into all-time highs, if you can show the weekly chart, I think it's a better depiction of that. Um, yeah, so right there, gapped up in all-time highs. And even on this market, correction worsened very well above the AEMA, just oscillating around that level. So just clear strength, institutional demand in the stock. Um, and so management also in, in their um, earnings report said that they think they're the 800 pound gorilla in the room, given it's a leading position in thermal management, product development, investment and technology, scale and ability to increase capacity. So, I mean, clearly management is confident, they're delivering, they have good numbers, and the charts reflecting that. So some, some numbers quantitatively that I found in their earnings, they reported Wednesday, August 2nd on that big gap up um, at 46 cents a share, beating consensus estimates of 29 cents. This is a 360% year over year growth and is a 59% earnings surprise in the stock. Again, like I said, reacted very well to it. So this clearly shows ins- institutions have demand for the stock. Sales reported at 
1.73 billion, 7% more than the consensus estimate of 1.62 billion at 23.92% year over year growth. And so we currently have four quarters of earnings and sales um, acceleration and next quarter earnings and sales are revised higher as well. I don't think Marcus Smith has the data for next quarter, but um, I've been testing out this deep view charting service and they have like eight quarters of future estimates. So that's where I pulled that data from. And so again, from the earnings report, they noted that they had a record $4.8 billion backlog in, in, in their product. So there's huge demand for, for their power and cooling systems. Um, so that's, that's pretty much it for VRT in that brief overview. Um, they had a strong beat and raise quarter and they guided higher and their, their 2024 commentary was better than like what analysts expected. So the second company I want to briefly talk about is VICR. And so they specialize in power electronics. They design and manufacture high performance power conversion components, which also play into that data center theme, but also other, like also another like wide variety of product, um, variety of industries as well, such as telecommunications, automotive and industrial automation. And essentially like what their products do is that, uh, they're able to convert power a lot more efficient than what we currently have. And that improves overall system performance and reliability. And this company is founder led, which is definitely good because founders are gener generally more visionaries. They have passion for what they've created because like they started the company, obviously it's like their baby. So the, the founder's name is a PhD in physics named Patrizio Vincerelli, who holds over hundred patents in this field. And I found that two of their earliest seed investors were also Nobel prize winners in physics. So clearly we have three PhDs in figure in, um, invest in this company two Nobel laureates. So clear this technology is definitely proven, um, to work. DeepView data says management also owns 30% of the business. So they clearly have skin in the game, which is kind of what we want to look for as an investor, because we want management to do what is best for the company. Um, and if they have skin in the game, they also benefit from that. And so what sets Vicor apart and what's, what makes them unique is that they combine, like they have their, their products have optionality. So they combine a bunch of various configurations in their, in their applications. Um, and they develop this modular approach, which allows flexibility and customizability, um, from their customers to design and optimize various power solutions. Um, their product is referred to as high power density, which means they can fit in a bunch of power in a very, very small compact form. And this is crucial for applications that have limited space, such as like, like nano semiconductors and things like that, um, data centers and portable electronic devices. Um, and so by providing if it, more efficient power conversion, uh, Vicor helps reduce waste, heat generation, and overall operational costs for, for their customers. Um, and so that's kind of what I have qualitatively about Vicor. And then just a few points quantitatively, the revenues for their second quarter ended June 30th, 2022 on that day, Don noted, and we, we clearly had a change in character gapped out of this bottoming base. Um, they reported, uh, 106.7 million, a 4.5% increase from 
102.2 million from the corresponding period a year ago. And this was also a sequential increase from the 97.8 million in the first quarter of 2022. Um, their gross margins also increased to 55.2 million for the second quarter of 2022 compared to 46.8 million for the corresponding period a year ago and increased sequentially from 46.5 million for the, from the for, first quarter of 2022. Um, their net income, or I mean, their, their earnings per share was came in at 38 cents compared to 24 cents, which is definitely good results as well. So they believe that they also finally opened up a new factory in Massachusetts and the founder of Incirelli believes it'll generate over a billion dollars of revenue yearly. So these are two prospective companies that we're looking into and potentially um, looking to buy once we've seen some stabilization in the general market and volatility and dampening and volatility. And they've got something new. That's what drives the stock higher. It's not the chart. It's the story behind the company. We talk about that all the time uh, in-house here at Revere. Great stuff, Ted. Uh, nice dive, nice overview into two stocks that are very high on our watch list for, uh, first of all, we need to get the market back uh, into a positive tone before we can take advantage of uh, these new names. Those are the two uh, biggest letters to me and cancel him. So appreciate it, Ted. Thanks very much. Let's move on to Connor, who's uh, got some sentiment. Uh, top, uh, his topic is sentiment for this week and uh, whether or not that is helpful or harmful to what we're looking at as far as uh, being bullish on the market. Connor, take it away. Yeah, so today I wanted to go to different sentiment positioning um, tools that we use. They're clearly secondary to price, but they can provide valuable insight when analyzing the market. So, so the first, first indicator I'll go over is the AAII Investor Sentiment Survey. This is the American Association of Individual Investors, and this measures um, the percentage of individual investors who are bullish, bearish, and neutral in the stock market short term, and this is pulled from their website on a weekly basis. So this can be a good uh, contrarian indicator because you want to see bear sentiment greatly outweigh the bullish sentiment for bottoms and vice versa for tops. So as you can see from 719 to you know August 9th, bullish sentiment has been pretty high. Uh, the historical average is 37.5%. So on 719, um, we are well above uh, the historical average for bullish sentiment. And um, and yeah, the, the, the one-year high was 51.4. So as you can see, the, the market had a short-term top right around when most people got bullish. So, and the time to buy was when there was virtually no uh, bulls left and bear sentiment was well above average for weeks on end, and that's how the market bottomed. So this can be a good uh, contrarian indicator. And, you know, if you're in a trending bull market, this isn't going to be as useful. But like we've seen recently, the, the bullish sentiment definitely grew and the markets are pulling back after that. So these are just a good thing to, that we check in-house on a weekly basis just to give us an idea of what our investors thinking, um, and, and think about the other side, because you always need to look at it, have a different viewpoint. 
Excellent. And so, yeah, if you want to go to the NN, the NAAIM. So this is the NAAIM. This is the National Association of Active Investment Managers. This is an indicator that tracks the average exposure to the equity markets among active investment managers. So by following this, we can get insights into what equity managers and fund managers are doing. Um, so as you can see, August uh, 726, the number of exposure was over 100%. And 727 is when the market actually topped. So you can say that that was a, a red flag and that was a signal. But basically, the numbers from looking at this that I've gauged from is that 10 to 20 readings can signal, signal market bottoms. So that means virtually no active man, investment managers are in the market. 30 to 60 can signal market corrections. So last, last week it was 65.49, that was the average. And then anything over 85 can signal a market correction slash top. So when you go back and look at this indicator, um, I believe when the when the whole stealth growth bear started, the number was well above 100. I forget the exact value, but this can just be another good thing to look at on a weekly basis to see see what investors are feeling and and how to gauge um, moving forward what the market could do. As always, we never predict. So these are always secondary indicators to price and volume, but nevertheless, they're good to follow and have an idea. And it's a good thing to keep you from piling in at the top too. When you see sentiment is uh, off the charts bullish, that means that one side of the boat is uh, getting a bit crowded. Well, yeah, it means everybody that, that was, was wanting to buy is already in. I mean, every, everybody's yep. fully invested when you got that real low bullish sentiment and it's down in the teens, that means there's a lot of cash on the sidelines to be ready to go to work. And if the market starts to rally just a little bit, all of a sudden people will start, uh, FOMO will kick in and they'll start putting money in. So. Yeah, this is the historical yeah, chart uh, that Connor was talking yeah. about. And you can see how low it, things were at the bottom uh, of the market. Good stuff. All right, appreciate that, Connor. Now Mike is going to uh, follow up on something from the past and talk about something new. Mike, take it away. All right, time for some fundamentals. Um, so just going back to the, um, well, speaking of the, the N, um, something that I wanted to mention, a few months ago, we, we had a mailbag question about weight loss drugs and the best way to play it. And Ted did a say, I believe it was Ted who did a segment on it and highlighted the NVO LLY duopoly. And at the time, LLY and NVO were at highs and it appeared the growth of weight loss drugs had been priced in. But surprise, surprise, what seems too high can always go higher. And this end now is starting to really catch on. And that is the, uh, the application of these diabetes drugs for weight loss. And NVO is is running out of supply because of this this high demand and LLY is is right behind them with um, just increasing orders for their diabetes drugs that have this newfound purpose now of weight loss. Uh, so I just wanted to mention uh, 
yeah, what appears too high can keep going higher. And uh, the two drugs, uh, they're Wagovi and Ozempic, and they're diabetes treatments that are also used uh, for weight loss, and they've exploded in popularity. And just some metrics on that, second quarter sales of Wagovi soared 537% to the equivalent of 1.1 billion. And as you can see, uh, LOI on their earnings, massive gap up, adding tens of billions of, of dollars of, of market cap, and NVO as well, uh, both, both of them sort of moving in tandem, uh, so that, that duopoly of, of the weight loss drugs. And what's interesting too, some other positive effects, we'll see long-term, uh, there, there's always, science is hard because there's always, it appears, there's this miracle drug and then all of a sudden there's negative effects. So we'll see, but at the moment it appears that, um, these, these drugs also reduce the risk of suffering heart attacks, strokes, and cardiovascular deaths by, by 20%. And on that news, NVO gapped up 17%. So yeah, what, what, what appears too high, and these, are, these aren't just small growth stocks. These are, as you can see, the market cap, $400 billion. So even though they're behemoths, they can on on that end they can still run so uh, don't be dissuaded if the if the price looks too high if there's there's a real catalyst there and then something else i wanted to mention is going back to the theme of natural gas and my my favorite name in that sector lng so there's a report that natural gas uh has been jolted by australian labor disputes and for a while there the price of natural gas has been just hitting low after low after low. But as natural gas tends to do, it just has spikes out of nowhere. It's very difficult to trade the commodity. And going back to what Dan said, I would, if there's any commodity I would avoid trading, it's natural gas because they call it the widow maker. It really, there's so many factors. There's weather, there's hedging, there's labor disputes, there's just a, a multitude of factors that the price on a just out of nowhere, really. So that's something I would avoid playing, but something that you can play that I like a lot is, is ticker LNG, which is Chenier, which is involved in the transportation of liquefied natural gas, which is pretty much detached from the actual price of natural gas, the way that their long-term contracts are set up. Um, so with this, when investing, you never know what's gonna happen, which is why it's so important to pick a company with the best management team and a history of executing in all market cycles. So looking at natural gas, there's the theme there, there's growing demand, there's growing demand all across the world in Asia and Europe, especially in Europe because of their past reliance on Russian LNG. Now they're scrambling and they've, they've secured new deals with Australian exporters, Qatari, and US exporters. So uh, in terms of management, LNG, Chenier, CEO, Jack Fusco, their team there, they've really done an amazing job at executing across all market cycles. They have a history of, of being a really resilient and um, dependable, um, consistent supplier. So uh, these partners that are securing long-term contracts, that's what they look for. And, and that's why when you're going to play a name in the space, I, I personally believe it's best to go with the, the best management team. So 
um, in terms of what's going on now, just just to to highlight the the fundamentals um, as to the the current situation, uh, there's basically a dispute between workers um, and Australian uh, natural gas companies. They're going on strike because they want higher pay. As we've seen, there's there's a lot of strikes recently. The the auto workers union is also demanding higher pay. We've seen UPS. Their contracts now going up to 170,000 a year in five years, which is pretty crazy. But uh, the threat of disruptions is really worrisome for Europe because we are in the summer months now, but they're preparing for their storage and supplies for the winter. And they kind of got bailed out last year on this warmer winter than expected. But based on the weather patterns currently and the way things are headed, it's been raining a lot. It's actually pretty cold there this summer. And they're expected to have a pretty cold winter. So if that's the case, they really got to secure those contracts and supplies now. And uh, that that um, drop in LNG exports, potential drop from Australian suppliers, could push uh, European and Asian buyers into a bidding war for gas from elsewhere, including the US. So the best place to be, in my opinion, for that is LNG. Uh, and we'll see what's happening, but the chart is confirming that if you can see the relative strength there after bottoming out, it's just been going higher and higher. They had earnings. I can get into the earnings next week if, if we're interested in, in going through the fundamentals specifically of LNG, but uh, that's that's the place to be. And and yeah, price action's confirming. So like, uh, like LNG a lot. Awesome. Thanks, Mike, appreciate it. Dan, before I take it back to you, I'm just going to give a very quick overview on the key levels that we're looking at in the overall market. And uh, the key level, obviously, is holding this 50-day uh, moving average on the S&P 500. We're watching that closely. Uh, we are getting a break of the 50-day moving average on the NASDAQ 100. And that's certainly not uh, beneficial to the overall market because of the large tech component in NASDAQ 100 also uh, corresponds to the uh, big tech component in the S&P 500, which is made up of the big three uh, spider sectors, XLC, which is communications, uh, XLK, obviously, which is tech. And this one looks so bad because of the reaction to Apple and Microsoft, which make up about 40% of this. Uh, since their earnings report and uh, XLY consumer discretionary, Tesla and Amazon are the two biggies in here. Uh, and that's holding the 50-day moving average from now. But the relative strength uh, of those three has been waning. And because there's such a big component in the S&P, that's going to act like an anchor and not an anchor in a good way. <laughs> and that'll... Uh, that will uh, sink your ship, will it? <laughs> yeah, or keep keep your keep your ship from making any progress. So, yep. back to you. You can uh, wrap it up for the week, Dan. All right, folks. Listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor. Just send them to revereasset.com. They can just go up to the right hand corner. There's a subscribe button. They can put their name and email address in. We're not going to reach out to them or spam them in any way. It's up to them to reach out to us. By the way, next to the subscribe button is a contact button it'll send an email directly to me and you can ask about a complimentary portfolio review a topic you'd like discussed or simply asking about a stock a specific stock or two um, um, 
Tom puts out, we do a daily market insight. It's called Tomorrow's Insights. It's a daily market insight video Don does every night. The market is open for about 20 minutes. And then you get this podcast delivered into your inbox every Saturday morning when it goes out. But if you sign up for our YouTube channel, just go to YouTube and just type in Revere Asset, just Revere Asset, and hit subscribe. You'll get this as soon as Zach posts it uh, on on the air. Right now, it is what? It's actually uh, 11.50 Central Time. He'll probably have it up there by, within an hour on, 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 on YouTube. So about one central time, it'll be up there before the market closes. If you really want our content. And we've also got some teaching educational videos and some shorts. We've got a lot of research that's free. It talks about relative strength or Fibonacci or moving averages, sell rules buy all kinds of stuff. Anyway, you can also email any of us, Dan at revereasset.com, Don at revereasset.com or Michael, Ted or Connor at revereasset.com and you can always call us old school at 855 real wealth we'll talk to you next week on your money it's not about how much you can make in the market it's how much of that you can keep Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.